In a minute, I'm going to go over there and we're going to talk about these metaphors of the church. And I love this section uh, because uh, it's, uh, the church is my favorite topic of all topics. Um, I love the church. And God has given us in the New Testament a number of metaphors um, that help us understand the nature of the church, how it operates. Uh, one of them is a fellowship. The fellowship, it talks about the nature of the relationships of the church. And then another concept that God brings about is uh, the, the flock. And this flock has shepherds that lead it. And then another one is the, the church is a building and the church is a field. Um, the church is an army. The church is a family. And it's interesting because those two, as I will share in a few minutes with folks in this class, actually at times kind of pull tension against each other because the family doesn't move very fast. Uh, not if you have infants, not if you have young children. If you have young children and you're going on a hike, you might not go very far. Mom and dad, they might be able to do 10 miles, but that little two-year-old's probably gonna do 10 miles on somebody's back. And, and so you go at the speed of family. And the church has to do that. And sometimes we, you don't see as much change as you want in the church. And uh, I've had over the years, people say, man, you, you need to move faster. It's like, well, we move at the speed of family. And sometimes that's not that fast. On the other hand, the church is an army, Matthew 11, Ephesians 5. And we are in war. And when you're in war, you're, you're not kind of concerned about, you know, the two-year-old's pace. You're in war. And, and you got to go after it. And sometimes it gets messy in war. And sometimes the enemy raises its head. And it's not PG-13. It's kind of rated R if you made it a movie. It's ugly. And so those can, can be tensions as they pull. Uh, the, the image that's probably used most in the New Testament, at least in this text, and in others that Paul writes, is this beautiful metaphor of the body. What Paul is saying is, is you'll be able to go home this afternoon, stand in front of a mirror, and God wants to teach you about the church. He says, as you study your body and you see the head and you see the torso and you see all the limbs attached to it, what Paul says is you're looking at something that God says is a metaphor. It's a picture of the church, how it functions, how it operates, how it cheers and supports, how it suffers even. And in that text, Paul is telling us, as you stare at this body and its diversity and its members, there are two sides that people tend to go that Paul wants to address. On the one hand, he says, there's parts of the body that kind of seem to habitually think, I don't belong, I'm not really that gifted, I don't think I contribute anything. And Paul wants to tell that person that's not true. We'll talk about that this morning. On the other hand, there are a group of people whom, and you might know somebody, or actually you might be one of these individuals, who thinks the church really can't do anything without me. And the reality is, you need to understand that you're not Jesus, and that the church can do things without you. And, 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 and it's not that we don't need you. It's just that your voice and your gifting is not superior to others. All of this, Paul says, is because he has this goal. And that is he wants to elevate, as he did in the first part of this text, the unity of the spirit. 
And now he wants to talk about the unity of diversity. Now it's a diversity that's really different than our culture. It is. It, it, it's a unity that is submitted, surrendered to the mission and to the whole, to the church. It's not a diversity that is mandating their own personal expression, but rather it's a diversity that is complementary. And Paul wants to walk us through how diversity can be an absolute complement to unity. You might want to ask the question, though, before we jump into that, is how do we become a part of this body? Because I would presume uh, on a weekend like this with a crowd this size that not every one of you is a follower of Christ. And that's okay. Glad you're here. Thrilled that you're here. I'm sure you're checking out the, the, the body of Christ and the teaching of Christ and you're, and you're wondering, it's like, you know, if I, if I really wanted to be a part of this body, not just attend, but really exercise and, and do the things that the scripture's talking about, how do I do that? Well, you're going to find a lot of different passages of scripture that deal with that. To those who believe, John 1.12, who believe that Christ has come and is our savior, those he gives the right to become children of God. Uh, Romans says that if you believe Christ is risen from the dead and he is Lord, uh, you will be saved. Paul uses different language here, but he's really talking about the same thing. In verse 13, he makes this statement, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink from. How do we enter into this body? It's through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's when you ask Christ to be your savior, when you believe that God sent Jesus to live on this earth, a perfect life, to die on a cross for my sins and yours, to raise from the dead, conquering sin and death, Excuse me. And then offering that gift to you. That's the day you become a child of God. What happens, Paul says? You get baptized by the Holy Spirit. No, you don't get submerged into water on that moment. But you do get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The recreation of your heart. You do get the powerful gifts You get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And Paul says you become a part of what? The body of Christ. And when you do, uh, when you do, uh, yeah, it's a bottle of Sprite. Somebody gave me a bottle of Sprite. I won't name name who it was, but they shook it up. I don't think they did it on purpose. They didn't know it. So when I opened it, I got baptized (laughs) in Sprite. And so everything that you can see right now is really sticky. But I'm going to take a drink. So how do we become part of this body? Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The day you got saved is the day you got baptized. And when you got baptized and when you come into the body of Christ, Paul says there's two points that we have to kind of be balanced about or the body gets unhealthy. And the first one he starts with, verse 14, 
is this idea of insignificance. And he said, there's, there's no way that a person who's part of the body of Christ can claim the insignificant factor. Starts off in verse 14. He says, now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. Stop right there. There's a whole lot of people that say, I don't really belong. I'm not a part of the body of Christ. I don't feel like I fit. I don't feel like I'm needed. Paul's point is simply, I don't care what the hand says. It can tell me all day it doesn't belong. The reality is look at your body and you'll tell the hand you fit. You're connected. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. He's the one who's connected you to this body, to the universal church, yes, but also to the local church because Paul's writing to a local church. And his point is this, no matter what you feel, no matter how many times you want to talk yourself out of it, the reality is if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are a follower of Christ, then the Holy Spirit has connected you and you do belong. And by the way, you're not insignificant. He goes on to say, If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, well, that'd be weird, where would the sense of hearing be? His point is, you can't claim insignificance. It's not a position. Any more than the hand can claim, I don't fit. Yes, you do. You're attached. You're absolutely attached. And that's his point. There are challenges, I think, in our day. Because sometimes when you come to church and you think, well, I don't sing up here. Okay. I don't play an instrument. Not good on the drums. Um, okay. And, and I really don't like children all that much. Or, you know, or I'm not gifted in that area. And you think, I, I don't fit. Ah, the problem is not that you don't fit. It's that you have too narrow a definition of the church. The church, yes, is expressed here. And I think it's important. I think the teaching of God's word, I think the worship of the collective nature of the church, that's critical. But when you walk out of this door, you're still the church. And when you go home and a friend calls you and says, hey, my husband's going to the hospital. Can you come over and pray with us? You're the church. And when a widow needs her roof replaced and she doesn't have the $25,000, but a community group puts themselves together and recruits some friends and goes over and instead of for $25,000, they put that new roof on for $5,000, that's the church. And when somebody comes home from brain surgery and we sign up a list of people that bring over food, that's the church. And you say, well, I, I can't cook. Uber. <laughs> the reality is, it is. It's a glorious world. One of my favorite pictures of the church. It, it will. It will be forever one of my favorite pictures. We had a lady in our church that had back surgery. She was at home and she needed to take a shower. She hadn't taken a shower and they didn't have money to bring somebody in. So somebody in the church who loved this lady went over to her house. She happened, the one going over to the house, I think was somewhere around 80, 81, 82. So it's like, you know, 81, 82, you kind of think I'm reaching for the pines, not her. She went over to this house, 
put her swimsuit on. I don't know if I'll own a swimsuit at 82. Be embarrassing. She puts the swimsuit on, jumps in the shower, and loves her friend by helping her take the shower. That's the church. That is the church. So if your definition of the church is up here or, you know, a greeter and you say, well, I'm not really a friendly person. Okay. Or, you know, I'm not technically kind of, I shouldn't be running the sound. Okay. This doesn't mean you're not the church and it doesn't mean you're not needed. You might be a coach. You might be a ref. You might be here on Wednesday night. Listening, you might show up here on a Tuesday and say, you know what? God got a hold of me when I was in high school and I want to be available to all the high school students. Great. It's going to be awesome. Our children's ministry's got more kids in it than you can imagine right now. You're needed. You're not insignificant. You can't come to us and say, well, I I just, I don't think God's gifted me. Yes, he has. And because the Holy Spirit is in you, you're actually connected to this body. Like, Like an arm is connected to the torso, like a leg is connected to the torso. And because of that, the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit is flowing through you. But there's also another concern that Paul has. And that is, he says, we cannot consider ourselves superior. In other words, you can't consider yourself as a person that the church just simply can't live without. There's not a person here today that can claim that. We can all be replaced. I mean, our church is 164 years old. There's not a founding member here today. There's, there's not, um, you know, our, our founding pastors. No, they all died and God replaced them. And one day if Christ doesn't come back, I'll die and God will replace me. Not a problem. There's no one that is superior, meaning there's no one that we can't live without. And that's Paul's point. He starts it in verse 27, uh, excuse me, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. My friends, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable and the parts that we think that are less honorable, we treat with actually special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable and treated with special modesty, in our world we call that private parts, we actually um, honor them and and they're discreetly taken care of. Paul says actually the opposite is there's no one that is, you know, a teacher, a leader, or, or a deacon that is in any way in a position that we say you're superior. In fact, if you understand the body, you go home and look at that mirror. It is the discreet, the unmentionable parts that Paul says are actually held in greater esteem and honor and need to be protected. It's those things that you don't see, in other words, that oftentimes make the church what it is. There was a doctor who came up after his service one time to a pastor and said to him, said, you know what, uh, pastor, when you were preaching, there was a part of your body that if you didn't have it today, you wouldn't have been able to preach. 
You, you wouldn't be able to do what you just did. And the pastor said, well, are you talking about my, my throat or, you know? Um, he goes, no. My vocal cords? No. Well, what is it? He goes, it's your big toe. Um, if I were to amputate your big toe, you wouldn't be able to walk this stage. Because your big toe at all times is kind of registering your balance. And it kind of moves as, as you move. And he goes, without your big toe, you wouldn't be able to walk up there. You wouldn't be able to hold your balance. And uh, makes my big toe just tired thinking about it. But and I was thinking, man, man I, maybe I should wear some steel-toed shoes in case somebody steps on my toes. Because that little part the doctor said to his pastor said, hey, you know, no one ever sees it. It's, it's hidden. But if you don't have it, you don't preach. I think that's true in so many areas of the church. Our deaconesses, group of ladies, 17, 18, 19 of them, they split our staff up and they pray for them. I was thinking this week how uh, I went into various different meetings. One meeting I'm I'm involved in is, is trying to help an organization that's financially hit some really, really difficult times. And their, their future is, is kind of uh, not in question, but it's, it's hard to get through. And I realize that as I'm involved in those meetings, there's a deaconess that goes with me to every one of those meetings. It's not that she's sitting there, but she prayed and asked God to give me wisdom. I don't tell her about my meetings. I don't disclose to her who I'm meeting with. She just commits to pray every day for me. This week, I was involved in some meetings with different um, couples and, and situations where uh, they're trying to make things work after some devastating things that happened, and, and they're going to make it. But every meeting I went to, there was a deaconess that went with me. They'll never meet her. They don't know her name. They don't even know this lady exists. But she was with me. She was asking God to give me wisdom and discernment. She was asking God to help apply the scriptures to this couple's life or to this individual's life. See, every meeting I went to, when I was studying for this text, that, that deaconess, she was with me. She just kind of walks me through the week. There's a group of ladies, uh, the first Monday of every month, they gather and they pray for the fusion for middle school and for high school. And you're welcome, ladies, to go. Just ask my wife how to get to our house. Today, there's, I think, 55, 60 young adults out at a retreat center praying. They've been praying all weekend. Those ladies prayed for that group. And they prayed for those folks to show up. And, and, and they're seeking the Lord together. I can't tell you how many times that when we go in, by the way, there's a group of people right now up in a room praying for you. Every time you come to church, they pray for you. And Paul says, if you understand the body, it's those parts that oftentimes you don't see, you're not aware of, they're discreet, they're secret, they're hidden, but those are the ones he says, we actually need you honor even more. Why? Because the world celebrates those who lead from the stage. But it's those who 
serve behind the scenes, Paul says, live with greater honor. Y'all know the president's name. What you don't know are the individuals who sacrifice their life to keep him alive. And that's true of every president. It's true sometimes of even, you know, other CEOs and leaders. We know their name. We know who's leading. What we don't know is the people behind the scenes that make it oftentimes all work. Paul says, if you understand that, you'll never fall into the trap of thinking somehow that you are superior, that your life is more significant and your voice should be carry more weight. No, if you understand the body, if you go home today and you look in the mirror, you'll understand that the two extremes insignificance, superiority. When you understand the body, you're going to understand how God put it together and diversity serves unity. Diversity leads to disunity when the members compete with one another. And they can compete over who's the worst. They can compete over who's most important. But diversity leads to unity when the members care for one another. Verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This morning, a friend came up to me and was celebrating. He had a number of things, four things in particular, that he wanted to celebrate. And they are. They're phenomenal. God has directly answered some really cool prayers. And I thought to myself, how tragic would it be if you got great news and had no one to share it with? That's why diversity, unique stories, coming together, that's why the church is the best place to celebrate. That's what it's meant for. I hope that happens every weekend around here. The people come like, let me tell you what God did in this week. On the other hand, when you suffer, the church should be the place you run to. A couple of months ago, I was at home working on a project and I I put a um, screwdriver through my nail. Oh, it, it went in right here and popped out. And uh, I sat there and I looked at that thing and I thought, you can't stitch that. I don't even know what you do with that. And I pulled it out and, and um, my right hand reminded my mind that my left hand was injured. My, my knee felt it, my toes felt it. My eyeballs hurt because that left thumb was just like going, whoa, whoa. You know, it was like every drop of blood pumping through that. And I was thinking first, it's like, wow, what do you do with this mess? And then I was thinking, Carrie's going to think I'm an idiot. (laughs) 
Um, it's coming back. It's ugly. It really is. And it's really still very, very sore. You know, the amazing thing is I, I never had to tell the rest of my body it hurt. I didn't have to inform them. They were right there suffering with my thumb. How about us? Do we, do we operate that automatically? Do we come, in fact, to the, to, to the church and do we come to our small groups at any moment ready to do what? Rejoice or suffer? Because that's your calling. That's your privilege. Uh, when, when my thumb took it for the team, the rest of the team all knew it. And, and, and I would hope that when somebody in our body suffers, now if you come in here and you're suffering, you don't tell anyone, shame on you. If you go to a small group and you don't tell anyone, man, you just got fired. And you go back home and think, wow, no one cares. Uh-uh. You got to move your lips before their ears work. Now, if you come and say, I got fired and say, oh, well, another day, another dollar. Eh, well, that's their problem. But this church should be this place where we are of all kinds of diverse, kind of, you know, uh, diverse gifts. And when we come together, Paul says, what leads to unity is when this diversity submits to one another. And we discover in this place that we're the body. Paul comes to the end of this, verse 27 and following. He says, now we are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of it. Make no bones about it. Everyone in this room, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles and second prophets and third teachers and workers of miracles and also those having gifts of healing. And then Paul asks a number of rhetorical questions. Like, are all of us prophets? Are all of us teachers? Do all work miracles? And and to these rhetorical questions, the presumed answer is no. What's the implication? Because none of us in here have all of the gifts, all of us in here need each other. Because no one in this room, Jesus is the only one who I think had all the gifts. And because none of us in this room have all of the gifts, we are all mutually dependent upon each other. We need each other. You with the gift of administration need the gift of faith right next to you. You with the gift of teaching, you need to hang around those people with the gift of mercy. Because together we can do something really, really special. And then Paul ends with this kind of unique phrase. He says at the very end of this section, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. Well, there's two questions you have to wrestle with. Number one, what are the greater gifts? And number two, why does he tell us to eagerly desire the greater gifts when he's already told us, verse 18, look at it with me, that God is the one who assigns the gifts. So why would you eagerly desire the gifts when God has already apportioned the gifts? Let's look at 18, remind ourselves what it says. Let me find it. But God has in fact arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts under the direction of the Father, and he orchestrates it perfectly so that the church is balanced. So help me understand, Paul, if that happens, why does he tell me at the end of this thing, oh, by the way, eagerly desire the greater gifts. What are the greater gifts? I think in this context, the greater gifts are those things that are what we would call Galatians 2.20, that's a text, um, the foundational gifts of the church. What are they? He's listed them. First of all, the apostles, we would consider them today, at least I would, um, those who are missionaries, those who are apostolic, who are groundbreakers, who uh, enter a place where no one has gone before, prophets, teachers, and then workers of miracles. Well, Paul, if God's the one who assigns it, why do you tell us to eagerly desire them? Paul is writing to a church, not writing to individuals. There are individuals in the church, but he's writing to the church. Who is he writing to? He's writing to a church that is insanely gifted, but really immature. What does that church need? What does a church that is insanely gifted, they have gifts all over the place, but they're really filled with a lot of pride, very self-centered, and they're using the gifts as ways to develop a superiority list. They're using their gifts as a way to kind of, you know, one-up another person. What does that church need? I think it needs the foundational gifts of the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers. Why? Ephesians 4. When you go to Ephesians 4, it says, what do those apostolic, those positions, those that turn from a gift into an office, why does the church need them? Because they're the ones that bring order and teaching and maturity to this church that was wickedly gifted, just very immature. I think that's what Paul is saying at the end. He's not saying, hey, I want the gift of tongues. God, give it to me. No, God apportions those. I want the gift of teaching. I want to I be a teacher. God's the one who assigns those. But what you can pray as a church now, would I say our church is at that place? No, we're not perfect. I just don't think we're Corinth. I've been to churches that are. And you don't need to come in and quench the Holy Spirit. You don't need to come in and deny the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to come in and say, oh, man, it's abusive. We've got to stop all of this. That's not what Paul says. He says, oh, yes. Avoid the trap of inferiority and avoid the trap of superiority. But in this church of wonderful gifting, but immature, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Why? Because they're the ones that bring maturity and growth and instruction and order. What I think was happening in this church, and it's true, is they were coming to the service and there was no order. We'll see that in chapter 14. They were coming to the service and there was all kinds of bickering as to what, who was going to get to prophesy and what they did with the gift of tongues. And what Paul says is, my friend, the spirit of God is no enemy to order. And what you need is to submit yourself to teachers, pastors, and leaders who come and bring order. Pray for those things. Because that's what the church needs. 
So Paul is not inconsistent. He's actually praying for the body to experience maturity, as every church should pray. God, in those areas where we are afraid of the Holy Spirit, let's pray that God would release that. In those areas that we have quenched the work of the Spirit and we're out of step with the Spirit, God, bring that to us. In those areas, Lord, where we have kind of sectioned off the Holy Spirit and we only believe in the Father and the Son, let us once again invite, as we did in song, the power of the Holy Spirit to flow through us, that we might be Ephesians 5, filled with the Spirit, that we might be Galatians 5, in step with the Holy Spirit. Because then you're walking in his power. You're walking in the anointing. And you're going to walk in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what he prays for at the very end. To do that, as Chuck Colson once wrote, he says, one of the great paradoxes I've discovered is that every element of the good life depends on pure and often sacrificial giving. Or, in fact, losing one's self. Today's language of diversity is demand your place in this world. The biblical model of diversity is submit yourself to the headship and leadership of Christ. You don't lose yourself. Diversity in the scriptures, you don't lose yourself. In that sense, you don't cease to exist. You actually find your rightful place in this beautiful thing called the church. And it's glorious. And by the way, you mature. I urge people to utilize their gifts, not because the church has a hole that needs to be filled. No, it's that if you don't use your spiritual gift, your muscle will atrophy. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you quit going to the gym for most of COVID. And then when you went back to the gym, your body said, this hurts. Let's go back to the couch. How many of you have ever experienced that moment where you awaken a muscle that you have just let atrophy? Then you don't grow. You don't mature. It's the same thing spiritually. And so I want to finish with just some very practical things before... We invite some, a team up to, uh, to close us today in a commissioning. How do you find what is that God has called you to do? How do you discover your gift? Let me give you a couple thoughts. Number one, I want you to search the scriptures more than anything. More than reading a book, more than getting online, what is my spiritual gift? Read the scriptures. Let them become your authority. Read in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and, and 14 and, and in 1 Peter. Just pour over the scriptures. And as you read over them, ask God to show you where he wants you to serve. God's interest. He's the one who gifted you. He's the one who takes an interest in the church. And so ask him, Lord, where is it that you want me to be on this team? How do you want me to manifest the church in my neighborhood? How do, how do you want me to live that out? Not just in our church, but as an extension of our church. And then look at your passions. You may have the gift of teaching, but you have a passion for teens. Great. Don't sign up to work in the nursery. 
You may have a passion to teach, but you prefer working with adults. Marvelous. Um, there, there are some of you who are just, you're passionate about infants. I thank God for you because I'm not. I, I don't mind babies as long as you care for them. Somebody, you know, hands me their baby. Here, pastor, you want to, you know, no, no, huh? If that baby cries, I can't figure out what to do with it. The same thing, here, Carrie, here's your child. I I like infants when they turn two. I've been honest about this. Last night, I said the same thing, and somebody said, man, did he just offend you because they had an infant? And he said, no, I've known Mark for a long time. He just doesn't really like infants that much. I don't. I just assumed they'd be born at two. But... That's a problem for the ladies, and so I will (laughs) submit to your wisdom. Every person has passions. You do, and and if you don't, man, I I need to spend some time with you, because it's in you. Discover them. Look for the opportunities that you've been given. God opens opportunities. Some of the things I've walked through are not because I sought them out, I got called into the dean of students one day at Denver Seminary, and the dean said, hey, um, our professor, Dr. Lewis, he had a severe um, accident, and he, his spine shrunk two inches. He's in the hospital. And he told me that you're uh, a student that really gets his theology. So he says, would you finish the course? And I'm like, what? You want me to finish the course? I'm a student in the class. And he goes, yeah, just teach it for us. I did. 20 years later, I moved out here and, and stopped teaching at Denver. I, I didn't apply for it. It wasn't even on my agenda. I just walked through an opportunity that God opened. And he'll do the same for you. But, but when he does, step out in faith and experiment. It's going to be risky. It's going to be different. It's going to be hard. It's like, well, I've never worked with this age or I've never done this or I've, I've never re-roofed a house. It doesn't matter. God will be there with you and others will be there. And maybe the most important, I think this is one of the most critical, is get feedback. You know, if you go into a fifth grade class and you teach, walk out of there with somebody who, you know, knows their stuff and is a gifted teacher and say, hey, what do you think? It's, it's humbling. But if that person says, wow, these kids really listen to you. you. You made sense. Great. If they tell you, ha, I would think of something else to do. It's okay. Feedback is so important because it keeps you from thinking superior about yourself. It's a struggle in the church sometimes. People think they're gifted in an area and they're really not. And we need to help them understand that. It doesn't mean you're not wanted. It just means maybe you ventured into an area that it's not your gifting. Just accept feedback. It's so important. And finally, a label is not important. Serving is. I'm not too interested. If God had a specific list that he wanted you to nail, he would have given it to us. He didn't. So don't get wrapped up on the labels. Get passionate about serving. Why? Because your spiritual muscle needs it. And you won't mature without serving. You won't. You'll forever sequester yourself to the infancy of the Christian life. And that's not God's vision for you.